For 30 episodes and counting now, I have closed out every single podcast episode of mine with this quote. Nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. Today, I'm here to tell you about the person who said that. Along the way, of course, we'll find ourselves in a theme park, this one located in Japan, themed all around that plucky Canadian redhead called Anne. This week, Lucy Maud Montgomery, Anne of Green Gables, and Canadian World. Today, I'm going to start with the story of Lucy Maud Montgomery. She's the person who set that quote, and she's the person who created that wonderful, influential character, Anne of Green Gables. I'll talk about Anne of Green Gables next and her international fame, particularly focusing on Anne in Japan. And finally, I'll go over the theme park, because of course, this is a theme park podcast, Anne of Canadian World. This is the 30th episode of The Abandoned Carousel, and I'm glad you're joining me. Let's get to it. So, Lucy Maud Montgomery. You know her name. I've said it at the end of every episode of The Abandoned Carousel. But who was Lucy Maud Montgomery? I'm so glad you asked, because it was a question I had, too. Did you know that she is actually an incredible person who did a lot of very interesting things? It's been really so delightful to research such a strong and brilliant woman making her own way. To paraphrase another woman, one of my favorite tweets of all time from the exceptional Blair Braverman about her amazing sled dog, Pepe. Now, we all know that Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote Anne of Green Gables, but how did she get there? Who was this ineffable being to make her own way, being strong and brilliant as she did so? Quote, to write has always been my central purpose, around which every effort and hope and ambition of my life has grouped itself. End quote. Maud wrote in her 1917 autobiography. Lucy Maud Montgomery was born in a small village on Prince Edward Island in Canada in November of 1874. In her 1917 autobiography, Maud includes a section from a poem called To the Fringed Gentian, describing it as the keynote of her every aim and ambition from childhood onwards. Quote, Then whisper blossom in thy sleep, how I may upward climb, the alpine path so hard, so steep, that leads to heights sublime. How I may reach that far-off goal of true and honored fame and write upon its shining scroll a woman's humble name, end quote. So we're going to get into Lucy Mon Montgomery quite a bit. If you're just here for the theme park content, then this might be an episode you want to skip, or you can use the podcast time codes that I include in the episode description to skip to the theme park section at the end. But I hope you stick around because Lucy Mon Montgomery had a really cool life. Maud's life was filled with difficult situations from a young age. Her mother, Clara Woolner McNeil Montgomery, died of tuberculosis when Maud was just about two. And her father, Hugh John Montgomery, known as Monty, 
was basically a bit of a flake by many accounts, and he gave Maud into the primary care of her maternal grandparents rather than care for her himself. Now, he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but also a jack-of-no-trades because he wasn't really good at anything he did. Um, and so he slowly moved himself bit by bit away from the homestead in Cavendish um, in search of quote-unquote business um, and eventually got himself all the way to Prince Albert, which is now Saskatchewan, which is some 44 hours away by car in today's modern era if you were to go Google Map it. And it was even longer then. It was like a six-day journey back then. He was out of Maud's life, and he fully left after Maud survived a bout of typhoid fever around age five. Before I go any further, I can hear the comments coming in already. Why are you calling her Maud? Okay, so although she was born as Lucy Maud Montgomery, in nod to her maternal grandmother, Lucy McNeil, Maud herself once wrote, quote, my friends call me Maud and nothing else, end quote. Later, she wrote, quote, I never liked Lucy as a name. I always liked Maud, spelled not with an E, if you please, end quote. Maud with no E, she was very firm. And so who am I, a humble podcaster, to go against the stated desires of such a person? So we will call her Maud. Now, Maud had a lonely childhood. As I said, she'd been given into the care of her grandparents, the McNeils, who had never really approved of their daughter Clara's marriage to Hugh John Monty in the first place. So her childhood was actually this constant tightrope. She was always balancing her passionate Montgomery blood from one side of the family with her Puritan McNeil conscience from the other side of the family. Tall, thin, severe old Grandma Lucy, she did love her granddaughter in her own way, and Maud did love her back in her own way, but neither of them ever really expressed it well to one another. And it was only later in the fictional character of Marilla Cuthbert in Anne of Green Gables that Maud ever truly celebrated her grandmother in any material way. So in the face of her father leaving, Maud really took out her anger on her grandparents. She never said a word against her flaky, flaky dad, not even in her journals. What she did do was she lashed out at her grandparents. Grandma Lucy had to play peacemaker in the house. She was playing peacemaker between her husband, the antisocial Grandpa McNeil, who had already raised some children and did not want to raise some more, and the angry, semi-orphan Maud, who was desperate for socialization and didn't want to be stuck in a house full of old people. Grandma Lucy pleased neither person in the process. And what happened was, is that Maud's quote-unquote ancient Aunt Emily, who was the McNeil's youngest daughter, got married off soon after Maud joined the household. And so this left Grandma and Grandpa McNeil alone with Maud. As the Dictionary of Canadian Biography puts it, quote, their stern Scottish Presbyterianism became more rigid as they aged, end quote. Think about living in a remote area, 11 miles from the nearest railway, 24 miles from the nearest town, population about 1,000, at the turn of the 1900s, and you might see the scope of Maud's isolation, especially as an outgoing tween and teen without parents and friends and socialization. It was a constant cycle between Maud's flights of fancy, which caused town gossip, 
which then her strict grandparents agonized over and restricted her further, and then she lashed out again, starting the cycle anew. I mean, all told, she really did have it relatively good, especially for the time period. She had a roof over her head. She had plenty to eat. She had clothes to wear. She even had shoes, which was a huge deal back in that time. Her family was really considered high status in Cavendish, where she lived at the time. And despite the small population, there was a school and churches and a meeting hall, and there were cousins and friends that lived close enough throughout her early years. In fact, her grandparents even took in two orphan boys for four glorious years of Maud's childhood when Maud was between 7 and 11 years old. These kids were named Wellington and David Nelson, or Well and Dave, and they were both around her age. And this meant it was really an incredible time for Maud because she had siblings like she always wanted. She had these built-in playmates that were her age that were always around that she could roam around and adventure with. Um, and they had just free range of the world. They could create and imagine and dream. They told stories. They went foraging for apples. They went fishing. Summers were spent wandering the shorelines, collecting shells, and talking with the mackerel fishers down on the coast. But unfortunately, it wouldn't last. One morning, it's said that with no explanation, Well and Dave vanished. Their rooms cleaned up, their possessions gone. Perhaps the McNeils realized that Maud was getting socially too old to be spending so much time with boys, or perhaps they simply thought it was kinder this way. But there was no word ever said again about Well and Dave. And Maud was even more lonely after that. Maud did have the occasional school friends, and she does often talk about the female friends that she had throughout her childhood, but it seems like nothing was enough. No one gave her the companionship that she craved. She wanted this bosom friendship, these kindred spirits. She constantly had these perceived feelings of being an outsider, orphaned and alone. As she herself said to her journals, quote, Materially, I was well cared for. It was emotionally and socially that my nature was starved and restricted. End quote. Of course, in her autobiography, that 1917 autobiography, and in other public-facing forums, Maud did remain neutral. She called her childhood very quiet and simple and said, quote, some might think it dull, but life never held for me a dull moment. I had in my vivid imagination a passport to the geography of fairyland, end quote. Now, her journals, Maud's journals, are a subject that I should mention as they are often referenced when talking about Maud's life in Anne of Green Gables, and I'm going to reference them throughout this episode. Maud wrote 10 volumes of journals over the course of her life. As she gained fame in the 1910s, she began to edit and type up her journals. Maud was savvy. She knew even back then that the journals would eventually be published or seen by people in some format. So she really began to shape them, even these private journals, to reflect her personal life in the way that she wanted to be perceived. So then we have what is, it seems like it should be, you know, this insight, but it still is a very biased source, an unreliable narrator. We do get insights into this private world of Maud, but since Maud rewrote and retyped her journals, she shaped the story the way she wanted. She even burned items that didn't fit her desired image. So clearly, Maud always had a public audience in mind 
even in private. One of the other interesting things is that unlike contemporaries Laura Ingalls Wilder and Louisa May Alcott, Maud's journals actually were kept private for several decades after her death. It actually took until 1985 before abridged versions of the journals were even published, and prior to that, only a handful of scholars even had access to any of the published or unedited material. From these journals, then, we get a deeper sense of the person. Maud was lonely. She tells us all the time that she was lonely. She felt like an outsider in the small town of Cavendish, although she was forever fervently passionate about the place, calling it quote-unquote hallowed ground. She invented imaginary friends who lived in the glass doors of a cupboard in the McNeil's parlor. There was Katie Maurice, a girl her own age, and Lucy Gray, an elderly widow who told dismal stories of her troubles. Maud had free range of the beautiful natural environment of Prince Edward Island, and there she learned to make fun and merriment everywhere, even when she was alone, out of the personalities of even the trees and the cats. Everything had a name. Everything had feelings. Writing and art were not seen as appropriate for well-bred ladies of the time in Cavendish, and so this marked Maud with her constant habit of writing and journaling as an oddity at best. And unfortunately, Maud's extended family ridiculed and disparaged her early interest in writing. They called it mere scribbling, and later used harsher words. These were comments that she would perpetually remember and perpetually resent. Harsh comments like this were the ones that Maud dwelled on forever, throughout her life and throughout her writing. Her autobiography recalls a time when she was perpetually called by a boy's name, much to her anger. Quote, that experience taught me one lesson at least. I never tease a child. If I had any tendency to do so, I should certainly be prevented by the still keen recollection of what I suffered at Mr. Forbes's hands. To him, it was merely the fun of teasing a touchy child. To me, it was the poison of asps. So what happened in Maud's life? So she lived with her grandparents for a while, and then around age 15, she received a summons from her father, the absent and flaky Hugh John Montgomery, and he had gone and remarried and just started a whole new family. And what he did was invite her out to stay with him. She jumped at the chance because she idolized her father. Her paternal grandfather, John Montgomery, accompanied her on the six-day-long train trip out to Saskatchewan for propriety's sake. But things weren't great in Prince Albert when she arrived. Maud was not welcomed with the open arms she expected. Her stepmother, Mary Ann McRae, wasn't that much older than Maud herself. Maud spared no kind words for her, saying that she was, quote, a woman whose evil temper and hateful disposition made Hugh John's life miserable, end quote. Maud was essentially treated as hired help in Prince Albert. In fact, the wicked stepmother, Marianne, she pulled Maud out of school, setting her to tend the house and care for her step-siblings. There were a few bright spots, though, all writing-related, because it was here in Prince Albert that Maud had her first works published, a poem and an article. Of the experience, she wrote, quote, The moment we see our first darling brainchild arrayed in black type is never to be forgotten. It has in it some of the wonderful awe and delight that comes to a mother when she looks for the first time on the face of her firstborn, end quote. 
What she had hoped would be a wonderful time in Prince Albert ended up being far from it, given all of this. And Maud was grateful to return to Cavendish and her maternal grandparents to her private bedroom where she could write in peace. Maud was desperate to escape from the bleak path that lay ahead for unmarried women of that time, and she knew she had to get out of town despite her love for Cavendish. She applied to Prince of Wales College in Charlottetown in order to obtain her teaching license. With personal money having long run out, Grandma Lucy stepped in, loaning Maud her own personal money to help her attend school. With only enough money for a single year, Lucy Maud Montgomery was forced to complete the two-year program in a single year between 1893 and 1894. She graduated with honors and described it as, quote, the happiest year of my life, end quote. I did tell you this was a story of a badass woman, right? Maud immediately began to teach. This was the days of one-room schoolhouses where there was basically one teacher for the whole town. Poorly paid and exhausting work in usually rural communities. Maud taught at three different town schools, and I will probably butcher their pronunciations. Bidford, Belmont, and Lower Bedique. These were schools of 20 to 60 students between 6 and 13 years of age, all in the same room, all at the same time. Despite these basic challenges of teaching and schooling back in the early 1900s, the sense I've gotten is that Maud Montgomery was a beloved teacher. She also spent the time when she was not teaching each day writing fiction and poetry for submission to the rapidly expanding newspaper and magazine market. In 1895-1896, she took a break from teaching and started studying literature at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now, this was actually quite rare for a woman, especially of her means, to seek higher education at this time. Like I said, women were expected to teach. Teaching was okay until you got married, and then you needed to stay at home and tend the house and raise families. Grandmother Lucy McNeil comes through yet again for Maud here, and she scrapes together enough remaining personal funds to set Maud through a year of school, but only a year. And the sense of it I got is, is that Maud was always kind of irritated at this because she had some cousins, one of them in particular, Murray McNeil, who was a male, and he received familial financial support to continue university, but because she was a female, there was no such default expectation. Starting in 1897, so just after this time, you really start seeing Maud publishing poetry in the Canadian papers. She starts having success with her writing. It was only a few years earlier, in 1895, that her first payment for a published poem came through. It was $5 Canadian, and with it, Maud bought a multi-volume book set of poetry, people like Tennyson and Byron and Milton. Now, here is something that I did not expect when I began researching this topic. I never would have guessed that Maud had quite the varied love life that she did. Apparently, in a January 1917 journal entry, she sat down and ranked all the men she'd had love affairs with, though she was careful to remind the reader that most of them held no sway over her affections. So in this section, we're going to talk about her love interests and the men that shaped her life. Nate Lockhart was one of the boys Maud knew in her tween years. On the cusp of womanhood or some other flowery phrase, um, Nate developed feelings for Maud and proposed at the age of 14. 
Now, of course, that was essentially a lot older back in the time that it is now, but Maude was not interested. She did not feel the same way, and she retreated from that. In Prince Albert, in that disastrous year in Prince Albert, she actually had two suitors. One was actually her school teacher, a guy named John Mustard, and he spent most of the year delivering unwanted advances to Maud. He actually went so far as to regularly call at her stepmother's house against Maud's wishes, and stepmother Marianne, this evil stepmother lady, let him in every single time. Maud complained furiously about this to her friends, Laura and Will Pritchard, a brother and sister, and Both Will and John Mustard actually proposed to her during her time in Prince Albert, but she rejected both of them. Now, in 1897, when Maude was finishing school and working in Bidford, she received a proposal from a distant cousin named Edwin Simpson, who was off studying to be a Baptist minister. And for the first time, Maude actually accepted a proposal. So this is proposal number four, and she did accept this one. She accepted, as she later wrote, out of a desire for, quote-unquote, love and protection. Maud felt her prospects were slim. She felt herself lonely and trapped in her rural teacher's position, and she thought she wanted the family life. Edwin was sort of attractive, and he was a smart guy. He was her intellectual equal. But things didn't go so well. So even though Maud was initially attracted to Edwin, her opinions rapidly shifted, and she began to feel trapped and repelled by him, finding him self-centered and vain. It's reported that she felt physically nauseated by his presence. The next school year comes, 1897 to 1898, so Maud moves to Lower Badik to teach. Here, she boarded with a family named the Laird family, And here, Maud had a passionate affair with the man she later said she loved the most out of all her suitors, Herman Laird. He was the opposite of Edwin in basically every way. He was a salt-of-the-earth farm boy type. He was kind of what we would call a himbo these days. And that was the opposite of the staid, intellectual, kind of boring Edwin. Maud was 23 years old, and she was smitten by this. Maud's diaries at this time are filled with her descriptions of the affair, which, like I said, was unexpected for me to find this, like, children's book author. Quote, Our lips met in one long, passionate pressure, a kiss of fire and rapture such I had never experienced or imagined. Ed's kisses at the best left me cold as ice. Herman's sent flame through every fiber of my being. End quote. Because... Yes, as you might have realized, Maud was still engaged to Edwin Simpson. They just weren't in the same spot. So this whole time she is carrying on an affair with Herman Laird. As the school year rolled into the springtime, Maud took herself to task. She resolved in her diary that she must stay faithful. But it was to no effect. Yes, both Maud and Herman behaved badly this summer. Maud was still secretly engaged to Edwin, and Herman was publicly courting a local girl named Hattie, squiring Hattie about during the day, and then sharing secret kisses with Maud at night. Maud's journal entries that year were filled with her feelings for Herman Laird. Quote, wild, passionate, unreasoning love that dominated my entire being and possessed me like a flame, a love I could neither quell nor control, 
a love that in its intensity seemed little short of absolute madness. End quote. It was not to last. In what seems to be an unfortunate set of coincidences in 1898 and 1899, Maud broke it off with Herman Laird. Soon afterwards, he died from influenza. Maud wrote about it in her diary, saying Herman was, quote, all mine in death, as he could never be in life, mine when no other women could ever lie on his heart or kiss his lips, end quote. Around the same time, Maud broke her unhappy engagement with Edwin Simpson, too. And not only that, but Grandpa McNeil died at the same time, suddenly. All of this change in chaos happened at the same time. And it was kind of a turning point for Maud. It really marked a big change in her life because with her engagement and affair broken off, Maud actually chose to move back in with her widowed grandma Lucy McNeil back in Cavendish. Maud had decided she was done with romance. So under the guise of taking care of her elderly grandmother, Maud was able to avoid any more male entanglements or shenanigans. She didn't have to because she was doing something. She took care of Grandma Lucy, who had, in her own way, cared for Maud so much in her childhood. And so Maud ran the post office, which was still there in the farmhouse kitchen where it had been all along. And in doing so, Maud got what she wanted. She didn't have to deal with romance, and she won respect from the Cavendish community a little bit, finally. Professionally, she was able to write full time. She was able to get the gossip from the townspeople who had come and gone from the post office, which she could then incorporate into her books and her short stories. And since she was postmistress, she could send these items off to the publishers without anyone being the wiser. So then she could avoid all those negative comments that she dreaded that ran around in her head over and over and over. Between 1898 and 1911, when Grandma Lucy McNeil finally passed away, Maud published like mad stories, articles, poems, and her most famous book, Anne of Green Gables. She also worked for a brief period of time as the only woman at the Halifax-based Daily Echo, but she gave this up in order to do battle when her uncle, John McNeil, attempted to evict Grandma Lucy, his widowed mother, from her house where she and Maud lived. Now, during these halcyon days, we do have another man that comes into the picture. This one is the minister who moved to town in 1903. His name was the Reverend Ewan MacDonald. He spoke Gaelic, and he was smitten by Maud's conversation, sense of humor, and charm. And in return, Maud did too find him at least attractive, kind, and pleasant. There was never any language of passion for Ewan the way Maud had written of Herman Laird, but there was at least fondness. For the first few years of their acquaintance, nothing happened. They were basically friend-zoned. But around 1906, however, Ewan was headed off to study in Scotland. He, he decided he needed to propose to Maud. He proposed before he left. She did accept this one, too. She had one condition, and that condition was the engagement had to stay a secret until Grandma Lucy McDeal had died. Now, Ewan and Maud lived far away from one another for all of the intervening years between proposal and marriage because Ewan was posted remotely for his job and Maud was still living in Cavendish with Grandma Lucy. 
Maud was not entirely faithful during the engagement, perhaps weighing in her mind the choice of a second possible future with a different man. Following the success of Anne of Green Gables, Maud had a brief and secret fling in the fall of 1909 with her second cousin, Oliver McNeil, recently divorced farmer on the rebound. Quote, I am again playing with fire, end quote, she wrote in her journals. Now, whether the townsfolk were setting them up or not was unclear, because of course her engagement to Ewan was secret, but it is clear that Oliver and Maud had passion for one another. Oliver proposed multiple times during his short six-week stay on Prince Edward Island that fall, but he did ultimately give up. The two of them did stay in touch via letters, though, and Oliver even sent Maud a book of love poetry. The summer of 1910 saw Oliver visiting the island again with another set of, quote, frantic scenes, end quote, that went nowhere. Oliver quickly found and married another Cavendish local, one of Maud's former students, and that was that. Maud later ranked him second after Herman Laird in her journal a decade later, in that list of people to whom she responded with, quote, power of the senses, end quote. This passage in her journal I thought was funny. It was apparently directed towards her children and her grandchildren so that they would see her as a woman that she had not always been, quote, old and gray-haired and hug-me-tighted, end quote. I really liked that one. So, as I alluded to, she did marry Ewan, but it took a long time. It wasn't until 1911 when her grandma died that she did finally marry Ewan. And at this point, she was actually 36 years old. So that was very old for the time. Ultimately, I think this was a really smart move on Maud's part, the timing of the marriage, because she got to take care of her grandma and have kind of her free time to herself for several years. And then remember I mentioned that Uncle John was fighting Grandma Lucy for the house. Well, she knew that Uncle John was going to win that battle the second that Grandma Lucy was dead. So, and she knew that she, Maud, was considered lesser than the other people in the family. So there was no way Maud was going to be allowed to stay there. So she knew that she would have to get a new place to live no matter what. And Ewan represented sort of a stable satisfactory life. So it was sort of a pragmatic choice. Shortly after Grandma Lucy died, Maud and Ewan got married in July of 1911, and they moved to a new place, Leeskadale, Ontario, where Ewan had obtained a church position. And it's really here that we start to see the Maud that is hidden inside. We start to see the sort of unraveling of her few brief years of relative happiness, because what Maud wrote in her journal, she describes how she felt sitting there at her wedding feast. She said, quote, I wanted to be free. I felt like a prisoner, a hopeless prisoner, but it was too late. And the realization that it was too late fell over me like a black cloud of wretchedness. I sat at that gay bridal feast in my white veil and orange blossoms beside the man that I had married and I was as unhappy as I had ever been in my life. End quote. A son, Chester, quickly followed the marriage in 1912. Son, Hugh, was still born in 1914, and son, Stuart, was born in 1915. Now, the next section of my notes was titled, Life for Lucy Maud Montgomery Was Not Easy, and I suppose this section title is a bit on the nose, as life is difficult for everyone. 
But it seems that married life really wasn't what Maude had expected, and things basically got contentious and disappointing and sad as the years went on. The first few years of marriage likely went by fairly quickly, all things considered, because there were babies and honeymooning and moving to a new town and starting a new church congregation. Quote, those women whom God wanted to destroy, he would make into the wives of ministers, end quote, she once said. And not only that, but Maude didn't stop writing throughout all of this. She wrote The Story Girl and its sequel, The Golden Road, in 1911 and 1913. She wrote Anne of the Island in 1915. A short story collection, Chronicles of Avonlea, came out in 1912, as well as at least 14 different short stories that had been published individually in newspapers and magazines in those early years of marriage. Now, what's kind of going to be interesting and relevant for the rest of the Lucy Maud Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables sections is that I told you about the journals and how they were published in edited form in 1985. But what was interesting is that those journals, so published between 1985 and 2004, were edited journals. Something on the order of 50% of the material was cut out of these journals because These were the darker parts, the negative side, and the publishers thought that that wasn't what people wanted to see. And so only very recently, especially considering how long ago Maude lived, were these bits of information come to light. And a real rock star in the Lucy Maud Montgomery world is her historian Mary Rubio at the University of Guelph. And she began publishing the unabridged journals starting in 2016, available under the title The Complete Journals of L.M. Montgomery. Basically, what these journals reveal is that at this point, Maude was a minister's wife, as well as a fairly famous person at her own right, you know, in her own right. She couldn't tell people what she actually thought anymore, if she ever could. And so it was only in her journals that she could really keep these darker negative thoughts. And this is even with her self-editing that we know she was had a tendency to do. And so what we know from these journals now uh, is that the this was a dark time in her life. Basically, the rest of her life, she really had some rough times. Her increased writing pace that we see here was basically part of a form of escapism for Maude. Now, with the onset of war in 1914, the sort of settled, seemingly good pace that seemed to have happened in Leeskadale was destroyed. Most of the young men in the community went away to fight, and there was terrible social upheaval, both locally and globally. Maude became outspoken politically. She was a passionate supporter of the Allied war effort. She published articles and essays appealing for volunteers to join the forces, and she began campaigning for women's suffrage far before it actually occurred. She stated that women on the home front were just as crucial to the war effort. And it this was around 1914-1915, and the federal government did not grant women's suffrage in Canada until 1918-1922. to her fierce passions towards the war, though, weren't as weren't as just helpful civic duty as they seemed. Um, so Mary Rubio, as I mentioned, she's one of these Lucy Montgomery scholars, um, and she observed, quote, increasingly the war was all that she thought of and wanted to talk about. 
Her journals show that she was absolutely consumed by it, racked by it, tortured by it, obsessed by it, even addicted to it, end quote. And if you think of your own behavior in terms of social media and negative news, you could see where Lucy Maud Montgomery did the same in a different time period. I know it's quite topical, but in 1918 and 1919, there was the Spanish flu pandemic. This killed 50 to 100 million people over two years. And uh, interestingly enough, as I learned in my research, this was actually the first H1N1 pandemic, although we nowadays associate that term with the 2009 swine flu outbreak. But during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 and 1919, 500 million people, 27% of the world's population at the time, were infected. And between 3 to 5% of the world's population died of that disease. It was one of the deadliest epidemics in human history. It said that things like poor medical conditions and government misinformation contributed to the high mortality rates. And the reason I'm telling you this is not because of coronavirus, which, by the way, wash your hands and stop touching your face, please. But it's that Maud contracted Spanish flu. She nearly died of it. She later wrote, quote, I was in bed for 10 days. I never felt so sick or weak in my life, end quote. Her friends helped care for her through the disease, but not, it said, her husband, who was indifferent to her throughout her illness. And in fact, it said that Maud actually considered divorce as a result, which at the time in Canada was very difficult to obtain. Only 263 divorces out of 6 million people between 1873 and 1901. Ultimately, she did not pursue divorce because she decided it was her duty to God to make the marriage work. What Maud had realized was that she could not find intellectual stimulation from her husband. For much of her adult life, she scratched that intellectual need through regular correspondence with other men— People like Scottish journalist George Boyd Macmillan and teacher Ephraim Weber. She also enjoyed the company of other men in person, although I'm sure it was always proper and kept above board, such as the dashing Reverend Edwin Smith, who taught at a different denomination in town there in Leeskadale. Now, this year, I told you it was a bad time for Maud, but 1919, she described this as, quote, a hellish year, end quote. Her dearest kindred spirit, a woman named Freddie McFarland, who I haven't had time to talk about, died of the Spanish flu. Freddie had lived with Maud for many months out of the year and helped Maud raise her children. Her death was a huge blow to Maud. Other things weren't great either. Locals were gossiping about Maud, who had the audacity to hire a maid. Maud's troubles with her publisher, which we'll get there, uh, came to a head during this time. And church politics in Canada at that time started shifting, and because her husband was a minister, this was a hugely important thing. This actually eventually resulted in the creation of a new denomination from several old ones, called the United Church of Canada. Now, although Maud had to put on a face because she was a minister's wife, in her private journals she was indifferent to the church at this point. She wrote, quote, the Spirit of God no longer works through the church for humanity. Today it is working through science. The church's leaders are trying to galvanize into a semblance of life something from which life has departed. End quote. So all these struggles, but then there was her husband. Maud's husband Ewan did not make life easy. 
Throughout his life with Maud, Ewan had suffered from mental health problems, severe mental health problems. During his professional training in Scotland, all the way back before they were married, Ewan had actually had a nervous breakdown, and he'd been forced to leave the program early without obtaining any further degrees like he had intended. He was only able to find a preaching position in remote communities after that point, where the people didn't have much choice. And his mental health was never stable, which he hid from Maud, and Maud never really understood the scope of it until well after they were married when they were finally living together. Ewan's mental health symptoms increased at the beginning of the 1920s with signs of schizophrenia and clinical depression. He lashed out at Maud. He told her that he wished she and the children had never been born, and that she was going to hell. Ewan saw women as of no intellectual importance and not, quote, worthy of real tribute, end quote. He refused to do housework or any form of child raising and increasingly spent his free time just staring off into space for hours, shouting, or even just driving recklessly. Indeed, in 1925, it's said that there was an incident relating to the church, where he nearly ran over a Methodist minister who had been promoting the new United Church of Canada. Had he not been a minister, it's said that this would certainly have been labeled attempted murder. In a coincidental move, then, it was decided in 1926 that a change of pace was in order, probably as a result of this incident. The family moved to Norval, which was a Toronto suburb. Maud continued to be involved in church events. She was the minister's wife, as well as continuing her popularity as a public speaker and a regular presence at literary events across North America. She was increasingly famous. Her books were as popular as ever. And she really wanted to spend time in the literary scene where she got her just dues. Ultimately, at this point, she won the nearly decade-long battle with her publisher as well, which, again, I will get to shortly. Maud saw Norval as a place with the charm of her beloved Cavendish, and she really wanted to stay there permanently. But like I said, Maud's life was basically only downhill from here, so things did not go well. Instead, at this point, her family caused her more continuing problems. Her dear son Chester was causing Maud headaches with behavioral problems and poor grades, not to mention a secret marriage and the birth of his full-term child after only six months of marriage. Stuart, the other son, was less of a handful, although he did court girls that Maud did not approve of. But more than anything, it was her husband. It was Ewan's mental health that caused familial stress. More often than not, Ewan was unable to fill his church duties. He required heavy doses of barbiturates to even stumble across the lawn to give a sermon, according to Maud's journals. In 1934, he was committed to the Homewood Sanitarium, and he spent two months there as a result, trying to get his mental health under control. He became paranoid, catatonic, and physically abusive towards Maud in turns. And after arguing with the church elders about his salary in 1935, Ewan resigned from his post and then retired in a fit. With both Chester and Stewart studying in Toronto and now no further restrictions because of Ewan's job, Maud and Ewan tried to find happiness by moving closer to their sons. Maud purchased a house with her own money. She called it Journey's End, there in Toronto in 1935. It was the only house she ever truly owned. 
And for a few years, things seemed good again, with a few slight child-related hiccups here and there. She was named to the Order of the British Empire by King George V, a great honor. Professionally, Maud continued to promote Canadian writers through the primarily female Canadian Authors Association, and she continued to publish and speak. However, critics, especially male critics, began to disparage Maud as being out of style by this time. They, they said that she was an example of Victorian sentiment that wasn't right for modern Canadian literature. Maud was ousted from the CAA board in 1938 as a result of this tide of sentiment. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Combined with the Great Depression, with extended family borrowing money and not returning it, with her son's personal and professional failings, and with her unhappy marriage and Ewan's mental illness, Maud herself was diagnosed with a heavy clinical depression. She'd suffered from depressive periods throughout her life, but this, this was a big one. Now, medication at the time for both Ewan and Maud was in the form of barbiturates and bromides, both strong medications whose damaging secondary effects were not understood at the time. We can read that to mean addiction. Barbiturates are mostly out of favor today, but you might be aware of them through names like phenobarbital and sodium pentothal. Husband and wife relied on ever-increasing doses of the drugs, resulting in a downward spiral of anxiety and depression from the late 1930s onward. As a result, Maud's writing, Maud's writing was her one constant form of enjoyment, but now she can no longer concentrate on it. She can no longer turn to it. Being cut off from that fundamental joy and emotional support also cut her off financially, and in her last years, Maud would constantly worry about finances. Not only that, but the Second World War had begun, and Maud had incredible anxiety about it. Where she'd previously been such a great journal keeper, now less and less. She wrote only one journal entry in the whole of 1941. It included the line, such suffering and wretchedness. In a letter to a friend in late December of 1941, she wrote of her family struggles. Her son Chester's wife had left him. Her husband's Ewan's attacks, which had, quote, broken me at last, end quote. And the fear that Stuart, her other son, would be conscribed to war, leaving Maud with, quote, nothing to live for, end quote. A month before her death, Maud wrote in a letter to her friend that she, quote, had doubts that she would still be there in a week, end quote. On her last afternoon in April of 1942, Maud packaged up her last manuscript and mailed it to her publisher. She went to her bed and died. A heartbreaking end to an often difficult life. Now, today's scholars are divided on the manner of Maud's death. She died of a presumed drug overdose, and the question is whether it was intentional or accidental. This has really only come to public discussion since about 2008. So on the 100th anniversary of Anne of Green Gables publication, the family, headed by granddaughter Kate McDonald Butler, came forward with this new piece of information, which had previously been kept secret within the family. And the intent was to bring this information to light in order to help lift some of the stigma surrounding mental illness. The information is that a piece of paper was found, dated two days prior to her death, discovered on her nightstand by her son, Stuart. 
It's considered by many to be a suicide note, kept private for almost a century. And in this last note, Maud wrote, quote, I have lost my mind by spells, and I do not dare to think what I may do in those spells. May God forgive me, and I hope everyone else will forgive me, even if they cannot understand. My position is too awful to endure, and nobody realizes it. What an end to a life in which I tried always to do my best in spite of many mistakes. End quote. Let us pause here, then, and return to consider the point of all of this, that book, Anne of Green Gables, which inspired so many. If you're at all familiar with English language literature, then you've at least heard of the Anne of Green Gables book series about the life of a plucky redhead named Anne Shirley. You might have a sense of how generally beloved this book and series is. It will not come as a surprise to you that there have been reams of paper, real and digital, that have been covered with text analyzing these seminal works. So I'm about to say something controversial here. I have never read Anne of Green Gables. I have literally only watched five minutes of any show or film adaptation prior to researching this episode. Um, The five minutes of televised Anne content that I did watch before this were uh, when Netflix suggested Anne with an E right when it first came out. Um, It was okay. I found it inoffensive. It was fine. It was just not my taste. And if I recall correctly, at the time I moved on to the next episode in my Star Trek rewatch, The Next Generation's Darmok, which is a very good episode of Star Trek, by the way. Um, It was a good night of TV. Anyways, I don't know Anne the way that everyone else seems to know. So literally at the beginning of my research for this episode, I had no personal opinion about Anne of Green Gables, one way or another. Now, if you've made it this far, you're probably just like very upset by that statement. I, I can sense the letters that you're already writing to me. Don't stop listening. Don't stop reading. What I propose is this. You might think that this background makes me ill-suited to talk about Anne, but what my theory presupposes is maybe it makes me the perfect person. Let's carry on. As mentioned in passing earlier, Maud began an intense period of writing around 1901 when she moved back in with Grandma Lucy. When she moved back to Cavendish to care for widowed Grandma Lucy, when none of Lucy's actual biological children would come and care for their mother. It was set to granddaughter Maud to do the dirty work, essentially. Short stories, articles, poems, books, all of these went out in secret through Maud's position at the post office. That was the way she avoided those negative comments from the townsfolk who disapproved of this old, quote-unquote, unmarried woman, especially a (gasps) writer. Quote, the dollars have silenced them, end quote, she wrote in 1905 of her judgy neighbors. Quote, but I have not forgotten their sneers. My own perseverance has won the fight for me in face of all discouragements, end quote. It's naive to think that a single source could be pointed at to say, ah, here it is, the source of inspiration for Anne of Green Gables. But what we can say is that Maud is an excellent writer. 
Maud took bits and pieces from her own trials and tribulations, from her family stories, from news reports, and so on, and she wove these together into fully-fledged characters and situations. However, we are all human, and we can still point to something. And so, like many writers, Maud kept a notebook with story ideas, words and phrases, interest in articles or clippings, pictures, and so forth. In her own words, quote, In the spring of 1904, I was looking over this notebook in search of some idea for a short serial I wanted to write for a certain Sunday school paper. I found a faded entry, written many years before. Quote, Elderly couple apply to orphan asylum for a boy. By mistake, a girl is sent to them. End quote. I thought this would do. End quote. Indeed, this probably sounds familiar to an Anne fan, as what I just read was the basic premise of the Anne of Green Gables story. The concept apparently is said to be popular at the time called Formula Anne stories, since one would know the formula of the story right off. Now, of course, as a sidebar, many, many people do the same thing today. If you're into transformative fan works and fan fiction, you will immediately know what happens in a story that I described to you as a coffee shop AU. Maud distinguished her character from the others in the Formula Anne books and stories by calling her own story Anne with an E. Well, there it is, that famous line, Anne with an E. Now, I will say that I was only able to find references to Formula Anne that were primarily articles discussing Maud and Anne of Green Gables, so this might be a bit apocryphal and take that as you will. Interestingly, this story idea that Maud points to, this 1904, I'm looking for an idea, where is this idea coming from? A lot of people claim that it was from a newspaper clipping, and it actually wasn't. It was a family event. Um... A routine adoption, routine at the time, notable for the mistake in that a girl was sent when a boy was requested. So in 1892, one of Maud's local extended family members, a guy named Pierce McNeil, he needed an orphan boy to help on the farm. A three-year-old girl was sent by mistake from the orphanage, and she was summarily adopted into the McNeil clan anyways. Maud knew this chick. Maud knew this distant cousin. Her name was Ellen. She picked up the family mail at Maud's post office. Maud was often at their farmhouse to borrow a buggy to go places. Um, and Maud may have even taught Ellen when she worked in the local schoolhouse. However, Maud was apparently quite frustrated throughout her life by suggestions that Ellen was even the slightest bit involved in sparking the character or story of Anne. And she was later quite judgmental about her cousin, saying, quote, There is no resemblance of any kind between Anne and Ellen McNeil, who is one of the most hopelessly commonplace and uninteresting girls imaginable. End quote. Quite fierce words. But we move on. Maud began as she always did, quote, write a book. You have the central idea. All you need to do is spread it out over enough chapters to amount to a book, end quote. She wrote in the evenings after her day's work was done, up at the window desk in her little gable room there at the house in Cavendish. She wrote and she wrote and she wrote, looking out over the gardens into the beautiful summer evenings, 
And she started to know that the story she was telling was too big for just this short story serial thing to be published in the local papers. She turned it into a book, a full-fledged book written between spring 1904 and October of 1905. Now, we could have a whole podcast at this point because there's a whole book called Looking for Anne of Green Gables that details all of the tiny little threads that weave through to create Anne of Green Gables. Um, and it's a very good book, and you should check it out. I recommend it. But we don't have time for this. This is already going to be a very long episode. So I will instead let Maud herself tell you the story of the publication, quoted from her public domain 1917 autobiography, The Alpine Path. Quote, Well, my book was finally written. The next thing was to find a publisher. I typewrote it myself, on my old second-hand typewriter that never made the capitals plain and wouldn't print W at all. And I sent it to a new American firm that had recently come to the front with several bestsellers. I thought I might stand a better chance with a new firm than with an old established one that already had a preferred list of writers. But the new firm very promptly sent it back. Next, I sent it to one of the old established firms, and the old established firm sent it back. Then I sent it in turn to three betwixt and between firms, and they all sent it back. Four of them returned it with a cold printed note of rejection. One of them damned with faint praise. They wrote that, quote, Our readers report that they find some merit in your story, but not enough to warrant its acceptance. End quote. That finished me. I put Anne away, in an old hat box in the clothes room, resolving that someday when I had time, I would take her and reduce her to the original seven chapters of her first incarnation. In that case, I was tolerably sure of getting $35 for her at least, and perhaps even 40 The manuscript lay in the hat box until I came across it one winter day while rummaging. I began turning over the leaves, reading a bit here and there. It didn't seem so very bad. I'll try it once more, I thought. The result was that a couple of months later, an entry appeared in my journal to the effect that my book had been accepted. After some natural jubilation, I wrote, quote, The book may or may not succeed. I wrote it for love, not money, but very often such books are the most successful, just as everything in the world that is born of true love has life in it, as nothing constructed for mercenary ends can ever have. End quote. And on June 20th, 1908, Maud wrote the following in her journal. Quote, Today has been, as Anne herself would say, an epoch in my life. My book came today, split new from the publishers. I candidly confess that it was to me a proud and wonderful and thrilling moment. There in my hand lay the material realization of all the dreams and hopes and ambitions and struggles of my whole conscious existence. My first book. Not a great book, but mine. Mine, mine. Something which I had created. End quote. Anne Shirley was an orphan who was mistakenly sent to live with Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert in the fictional town of Avonlea on Prince Edward Island. Beyond that, the novel is sort of plot light, mostly a series of vignettes showing how Anne settles into her new home. Clearly, we can see influence in the basic structure from Maud's own life straight away. 
we have Marilla and Matthew drawn from the grandparents McNeil, Avonlea heavily based off of Cavendish, and so forth. Anne's trials, too, were born from Maud's own. Her imaginary friend, Katie Maurice, who existed solely in the reflection, quote, in the fairy room behind the bookcase, end quote, was dropped in full cloth into the book. Anne's love of nature was heavily influenced by Maud's own childhood spent wandering through the forests and streams and hills of Cavendish. The rough structure of Anne's life is, in fact, Maud's own. She got a teaching license at age 16 in one year instead of two. She pursued a bachelor's degree at a fictionalized version of Dalhousie University. She had a sudden death of a paternal figure, Matthew, requiring Anne to return to Avonlea and stay there with the aging Marilla. The bones are all from Maud. Other influences from the time came from magazines, such as the popular Godet's Ladies Book. Anne's image was drawn from a 1903 photograph that Maud had clipped out from New York's Metropolitan Magazine, pasted on the wall of her bedroom to remind her, not of Anne's physical looks exactly, but of Anne's, quote, youthful idealism and spirituality, end quote. Now, this image is gorgeous. It shows this radiant young woman with this floral headband gazing up innocently into dramatic, gorgeous lighting. It's a beautiful picture, and you can find it in the show notes for this episode, theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 30. The woman featured in this picture, by the way, she's worthy of a little bit of a sidebar. Her name was Evelyn Nesbitt, and Evelyn Nesbitt was a Gibson girl a glittering girl model of Gotham, in the first years of the 20th century. Before Anne of Green Gables was even published, though, Evelyn Nesbitt actually became the star witness of the first so-called trial of the century. This was a sensational case, where her millionaire husband shot and killed her rapist and lover, architect and socialite Stanford White absolutely beyond the scope of this podcast, but there was a really great episode on it from the podcast Footnoting History, um, and I'll include some links to some relevant reading and listening in the show notes for people who are interested. Definitely, definitely a fascinating topic to get into. So back to Anne. It would not be a discussion of Anne if I don't mention her looks, because what I've learned is that the character of Anne is, in the book, obsessed with her own image, her own looks. And much of modern Anne culture, too, is about the characteristic Anne look. It's the appearance. Anne is supposed to have a thin frame, pale skin with freckles, and, of course, iconic red hair. Originally, her hair was labeled as really bright shades of red, and later it dulled down to something that's described as Titian red, named after the painter. Um, and if you think of famous characters Nancy Drew and Dana Scully, you'll get the shade of red that Anne's hair should be. And as I'll get to shortly, in Japan, the series is not known as Anne of Green Gables. It's known as Red-Haired Anne. Iconic. I love it. This was really the zeitgeist of the time it was published, too, because red hair was really all the rage that year, all the rage right around the turn of the century. So, as to the reception of Anne and Green Gables, 
I had no personal experience. As I told you, where was I the day that the Ann books were handed out? I don't know. I was probably reading The Babysitter's Club or something like that. Um, I reached out to some friends to get a sense of their feelings towards the books in general. And it should not come as a surprise that reactions from people of widely differing backgrounds and ages all were universally positive, almost universally positive. My friends went on with much praise in particular for the themes of female friendship that are written in these books, for the sense of optimism and positivity that Anne brought to her challenging situations. Indeed, as I've said, gallons of both real and digital ink have been spilled about the beauty of the relationships in Maud's books, which I can't distill here without cheapening them. It's really hard to collapse what makes the book so beloved into any brief space. Anne of Green Gables still retains its popularity and eternal nature even now, 112 years after its original publication. This book has never, ever been out of print. Although the book is firmly ensconced in the time period in which it was published, it still speaks to readers on a very intimate emotional level. It has the trappings of a fairy tale. The sense in Anne of Green Gables is that even if things are bad now, they'll get better. I loved this comment that I found that can be summarized as so. Anne books are feminist texts, even if they're outside of the standard sort of female empowerment literary tropes because, quote, they insist that the lived experience of women matters across class and geography and age, end quote. Anne of Green Gables was published in 1908, and it was an instant success. It sold over 19,000 copies in its first five months, and it was reprinted 10 times in its first year. And it wasn't just Canadians interested in the book. It had a broad reach, and people like even Mark Twain, the famous Mark Twain, liked the book. Twain is actually quoted as saying that Anne Shirley was, quote, the dearest, most moving and delightful child since the immortal Alice, end quote. A typical newspaper review at the time called Anne of Green Gables a, quote, sweetly simple tale of childish joys and sorrows of a diminutive red-haired girl, end quote. And they declared it, quote, the literary hit of the season with the American public, end quote. The Toronto Globe reviewed the book at the time with another typical review saying, quote, Anne of Green Gables is worth a thousand of the problem stories with which bookshelves are crowded today, end quote. Earlier, I talked about how the mid to late 1910s were a tough time for Maud. Much of this was related to her battles with her publisher at the time, L.C. Page and Company. I read an excellent essay entitled, quote, The Robber Baron of Canadian Literature, end quote. And I think that's really an apt description for this publisher, Lewis Page. Page was, to put it bluntly, not a good guy. He was ruthless. He hacked apart authors' texts without shame. He took massive shares of the profits without distributing to authors their dues. And he did lots of other dishonest publishing acts. Page took and took and took with an attitude of, so sue me. Because he knew then as now, lawsuits took time. They were long and they were expensive. And that was something that was out of the reach of most of the poor writers that he served. 
Now, as we mentioned in the story of how Anne came to be, Maud was getting kind of desperate at the time that she was shopping her book around. She'd already had several rejections, and she wanted to get this book published. She thought it was pretty good. So even though she had some indication from her friends that this page guy was a shady guy, she still signed the contracts without any apparent negotiation. Within three weeks, she had a contract for publishing her books in May of 1907. The contracts were, I've seen them described as wild. Um, They basically had these crazy requirements for sequels. Uh, They insisted that she had to write sequels as part of the contract. And the low, low royalties, 10% on the wholesale price, not just the price, but the wholesale price over and above the first thousand. And they also had this five-year binding clause keeping Maud with the publisher for at least five years. There was very little, it seems, that Maud fought about regarding these publishing contracts because she wanted her book to be published. But what she did fight about was she wanted her books to be published under the name L. M. Montgomery. She wanted that gender neutrality because she thought the books would be taken more seriously that way. Page preferred the flourishing Lucy Maud Montgomery, that full name. But Maud got her way. And if you see the books, they are still L. M. Montgomery. But Page pretty much got everything else. He got the books, he got the sequels, he got the money, he got the illustrations, which Maud hated. Maud especially hated the illustration in the end of Anne of Green Gables because, in her opinion, it hinted at an ending that her actual text had not. And so she really didn't like that. Maud went to work right away on the Anne sequels, as she was contractually obligated to do, even though soon after publication, she was already falling into a love-hate relationship with her most famous character. Within a decade, things were really coming to a head. By July of 1915, Page had threatened to stop promoting Maud's books. He wanted her to sign another five-year contract. She did so begrudgingly. He published an unsanctioned book of cast-offs called Further Chronicles of Avonlea. These were all things that Maud had written and then thrown out for not being good enough. Um, he also gambled away the profits her books had made. His personal life was full of sexual immorality. And he wasn't paying his writers. He wasn't paying Maud. And because of this, like, payment scheme where it was the percentage of the wholesale price, it was really opaque, and it was hard to find out how much she was supposed to be getting paid. And when she did find out, it turned out that Maud had been getting $0.07 cents per dollar on each book, instead of $0.19 cents per dollar as she was owed. Beginning in 1917, she switched publishers, and she sued Page. He tried to get her back by selling the rights to one of the sequels, Anne's House of Dreams. But Maud stood firm. Those rights did not belong to him to sell, and he'd withheld the royalties she was due. She was going to get her own from him. Quote, There is something in me that will not remain inactive under injustice and trickery. End quote. She went on to say that Page and his company had, quote, traded for years on the average woman's fear of litigation, end quote. Finishing with a bang, she went on to say, quote, very few authors can afford to go to law with them, especially when they can't expect to get money out of the result, 
They have done the most outrageous things to poor authors who can't afford to seek redress. End quote. It took almost a decade to get that redress and five different lawsuits. He tried to take the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. They were not interested, by the way. Maud stopped writing about Anne in her journals because all the fun had gone out of it. She said, although she'd made money, quote, it's a pity it doesn't buy happiness, end quote. Now, Page, meanwhile, had sold the film rights to the Anne books all the way back in 1908. Maud had no say in the first few versions of Anne that were ever seen on the screen, either the 1919 or 1934 versions. And the money from them went straight to Page. Maud didn't get any of it. Maud was furious over the 1919 film in particular, saying, quote, I think if I hadn't already known it was from my book, that I would never have recognized it, end quote. She went on to slam the New England setting of the film as well, saying, quote, A skunk and an American flag were introduced, both equally unknown in Prince Edward Island. I could have shrieked with rage over the latter. Such crass, blatant Yankeeism. End quote. The Massachusetts courts ruled in Maud's favor in 1925, finding that she had been cheated out of money she'd been owed by Page and his company. Page used every trick in the book to continue to try and avoid his fate. He even said that Maud's lawsuit had caused his brother's 1927 heart attack. And he continued a harassment campaign against Maud, constantly sending her negative, awful telegrams. Page and his brother were not close, so this was like a nothing burger. Finally, however, Page had no choice and he couldn't escape what he had to do. And so in 1928, Maud finally received the check for $15,000, the sum that the courts decided was owed to her. This ended up being only about $4,000 after paying her lawyers, and Maud sensibly invested the money in the stock market. However, of course, this was 1928, and we all know what the stock market did in 1929. Maud lost much of her recovered savings that she had fought so hard for. Ironically, of course, today, the rights to Anne are incredibly popular, um, and incredibly profitable, and they're held jointly by Maud's heirs and Prince Edward Island itself through a licensing corporation. Now, it's absolutely beyond the scope of the podcast to go into any detail, but Anne of Green Gables has become a licensing and merchandising magnet, and there have been so many different versions of the story over the years. Of course, the books themselves are almost all public domain at this point, so you can go to Project Gutenberg right now, where all public domain books live, and you can just download a text version of Anne of Green Gables and read it for yourself. But there have been lots of other adaptations, analyses, um, TV shows, films, musicals, etc. So there were 1952 and 1972 BBC adaptations, 1956 and 1958 CBC TV musicals, um, in 1965, there was the premiere of the Anne of Green Gables, the musical in Charlottetown, and this still goes on every single year, marking the beginning of the longest running annual music theater production in the world, per Guinness Book of World Records. 
Now, apparently, the Kevin Sullivan 1985 CBC miniseries is considered the best-known adaptation because it was the one that most people that are my age grew up watching and watched on VHS um, and DVD and so forth. And this version, I was surprised to learn, it actually won itself an Emmy among other awards. And Sullivan went on to do three more sequels a 1986 sequel, a 2000 sequel, and a 2008 sequel. One of them was a prequel. I don't remember which one. There have been PBS versions, and then the most recent CBC adaptation is the one that you're probably familiar with in the modern era because it was distributed by Netflix here in the States, Um, and this one was called Anne with an E. Anne is big money. Like, she's a draw for audiences of all ages, in all decades. It's incredible that Anne is still so popular after such a long time. Nowhere is Anne's popularity more striking or notable than, of all places, Japan. And the story of how Anne of Green Gables became popular there is well worth hearing. We begin by considering Loretta Leonard Shaw, a contemporary of Maud's and a fellow Canadian, although the two never knew one another personally. Loretta was a decorated, highly educated student from St. John with a BA in English, French, and German and a teaching certificate with the highest possible marks. However, it was missionary work where her passion truly lay. Loretta was accepted for missionary service in Japan, and in less than a year from receiving the acceptance, she learned Japan and moved to Osaka. She taught young girls there for a number of years, and although education of girls was not considered important in society at that time, enrollment at the school she was teaching at increased tenfold over the course of time that she was teaching there, particularly due to her skills and the curriculum that she helped put in place. Loretta sensibly commented that it was, quote, unwise and immoral, end quote, for women and girls to be given lower educational standards based on outdated cultural concepts of gender inferiority. Throughout her life, Loretta was instrumental in representing the two cultures to one another as much as she could, bringing items and ideas from Japan to Canada and likewise from Canada to Japan. By the mid-1930s, Loretta was the head of the Women's and Children's Literature Department at the Christian Literature Society of Japan, where she brought translations of quote-unquote wholesome Western literature to Japan. And here is where a friendship made an incredible difference far larger than they ever would have guessed at the time. In the late 1930s, just before war broke out and just before Loretta had to return back to Canada due to health issues— she gave a copy of a favorite book to a friend of hers in memory of their friendship. This was Anne of Green Gables, hardcover with a cream-colored binding, green-shaded portrait of a beautiful young girl on the front. This friend, of course, was named Hanako Miraoka. She was born from a small, impoverished farming town and, with luck, attended the prestigious school in Japan founded by the Women's Missionary Society of the Methodist Church of Canada, known as Toyo Iwa. There, she studied Japanese subjects in the morning and English and Canadian subjects in the afternoon. This foundation gave her the skills and interest to begin translation as a career and passion, publishing a collection of translated short stories soon after her formal education was completed. 
This wasn't only a difficult task, but it was also a challenge from society at a time when women were not encouraged to have independence or careers. Her life became difficult after World War I. Her husband's publishing company was destroyed in an earthquake, and her son died suddenly at a young age. Her translations were her main solace and her main coping strategy, starting with Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, published in 1927. Now, Loretta met Hanako in the early 1930s when they were both working as editors at the Christian Literary Society of Japan. In fact, in 1936, Loretta Leonard Shaw published an article entitled Utopia in a magazine from this organization, and it was put out in both English and Japanese, discussing how she and her fellow editors saw themselves as ambassadors for their respective cultures, and that the best and fastest way to maintain friendship as cultures was to introduce the best books of each nation to one another. In 1936, Loretta left Japan, as I said, and before she did, she gave Hanako Muraoka a copy of Anne of Green Gables with the hopes that she would translate it into Japanese. Hanako is said to have been enchanted by it, and she began translating it shortly thereafter in her leisure time. The book actually resonated with Hanako's early childhood, the pastoral natural setting, the love of poetry, words, and literature. Hanako used her language skills in other ways as well. Beginning in 1932, she had actually begun a daily five-minute news program that was plainly explaining the news to children over the radio. Um, she was actually incredibly popular and was called Auntie Radio. She also participated in simultaneous translating, showing off her skills. For instance, she translated speeches by FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt live on the air. Someone would just basically copy it down and hand it to her and she would just translate as she read it. But with the start of the war approaching as the decade came to a close at the end of the 1930s, English language content was beginning to be seen as the enemy. Hanako actually had to quit her job at the radio. She didn't want to read the hostile war-centered news to children. And she didn't want to speak badly of the Canadians, many of whom she'd known for much of her life and whom she considered friends. And at the same time, Hanako had to hide her ongoing translation efforts for Anne of Green Gables. With the world at war in World War II, Canada was now the enemy of Japan. English was the language of the enemy, and it could get you arrested. But Hanako carried on secretly translating Anne of Green Gables from English to Japanese. Her translations were so precious to her that she reportedly just bundled them into her arms, and they were one of the few things she took with her into the air raid shelters. Now, post-war, people could once again hope for utopia, but it took some time for recovery efforts to really begin. It wasn't until around 1950 that the publishing houses were able to even start recovering from the physical damages of war. We don't think about this a lot now, but think about how many things were bombed and blown up back in World War II. Hanako Muraoka published her Japanese translation of Anne of Green Gables finally in 1952. It was called Akaje no Anne, or Red-Haired Anne. The book, unsurprisingly, was a bestseller. Hanako published the subsequent translations between 1954 and 1959 for the remaining Anne books. And by the 1970s, her translations were added to the curriculum in Japanese schools. 
Hanako intended to visit Prince Edward Island in 1968. Unfortunately, this never happened. She passed away after a sudden stroke in October of 1968, never having visited the place embodying the spirit of Canada that had occupied so much of her time throughout her life. In the end, said her granddaughter in an interview with a Japanese news source, quote, it may have been for the best that the island she knew was the perfect one she had created with her translation, end quote. Today, Hanako Muraoka is closely twined with the story of Anne coming to Japan, and she's become a figure of some legend and renown on her own. Her granddaughter, Eri Muraoka, published a recent biography about Hanako entitled Anne's Cradle, The Life of Muraoka Hanako. A dramatized version of the biography was made into a serialized TV drama in 2014, and it was actually a rating success. And it really helped rekindle the love for Anne and the people who had a hand in her development. Because in Japan, she almost has taken on a role of her own. She's seen as a character all over Japan. Red-haired Anne, then, as can be evidenced by this tale, was and still is an incredibly popular figure in Japan. Anne of Green Gables is sort of an expected childhood book here in the U.S. from where I write. It's kind of a passing, common reference. It's a generic childhood book that maybe you might think is a little out of date now. You know, did you read Anne of Green Gables or did you read Little House on the Prairie or did you read Call of the Wild as a kid? Maybe you read Hatchet or Bridey of the Grand Canyon or Where the Red Fern Grows. But it's just kind of sort of like a rote recitation of the books you might have read at school. None of these books that I just listed really hold a place in the U.S., in my opinion, that Anne appears to hold elsewhere in both Canada and Japan as sort of current icons of the culture. In Canada, especially, Anne is kind of up there with maple syrup in terms of national icon, souvenir popularity, etc. But it's more unexpected that Anne would be so incredibly popular in Japan. I mean, if I sit down to Google and I type, why is Anne of Green Gables? And then I sit there and let Google autocomplete that phrase, the top search terms are, why is Anne of Green Gables an orphan? Why is Anne of Green Gables so popular? And why is Anne of Green Gables popular in Japan? Of course, the popularity started with Hanako Muraoka's translations in the 1950s. That's why I even told you about her. It was sort of a backlash against the wartime strictures against Western language and literature and ideas. People were excited to have something new. But why was she popular? From what I've read, it's as simple and as complicated as this. It was a good book with a good message. The message of Anne resonates very strongly with the messages of Japanese culture. Basic morality of life and examination of life's questions in a simpler setting. That's something that's very attractive. Anne is about finding happiness and presenting lessons that are applicable to all people in a very straightforward setting. And not only that, but Anne's world is very kawaii. It's very cute. From a 1998 essay by Judy Stoffman, too, we have this interpretation of why the Anne books took off in 1952 in Japan. Quote, the book's success was due in part to there being almost no realistic Japanese children's literature, particularly for girls. A female in traditional children's stories usually turns out to be a ghost or a malevolent spirit. End quote. Apparently, Anne also fits with the Japanese cultural lessons of filial devotion and parallels a very classic tale called Momotaro about a boy who's raised by an elderly couple. And... In addition, if you think about it, 
At the time, the first wave of Japanese readers were really quite poor after the war, so they could really, really resonate and empathize with Anne when she was describing the amazingness of things like puffed sleeve dresses and layer cakes. That seemed just as amazing to them as it did to her, so it really took off in their imaginations of the culture at the time. As for why Anne is still so popular today, of course, we can never be truly certain. But Anne is a part of the curriculum at a lot of schools now. And it sounds like Anne is used by some teachers as a way of discussing gender roles. This is something that's long considered a taboo topic. But teachers use Anne as a way to discuss gender roles in society and introduce some previously taboo topics in a very approachable way. And Anne is seen as a safe bet by publishers. She's been translated by multiple translators in Japan through multiple editions. Early translations, Muraoka's translations, they were criticized for their omissions, both large and small, things like language and as well as key scenes. Modern translations have been uh, promoted as complete translations, and they even go so far as to include notes, um, explanations on the translated text, literary allusions, and so forth. Not only is it translated books, though, like physical books, but also ancillary works like analyses, children's books, and more. There's been a musical version in operation since 1980. There have been traveling museum exhibits. Perhaps the most famous and most innately Japanese are the Anne of Green Gables anime. The first of the two is the most well-known. It came out in 1979. It had 50-some-odd episodes, and it was called, just like the book, Akaje no Anne, Red-Haired Anne. What is really striking is that the people involved are noteworthy in the right circles. It's directed by a guy named Takahata, And the scene setting, layout, and animation were from a guy that you might know named Miyazaki. These two names are notable across the globe, even for the casual person. This is me. I'm the casual person. Um, Because they are responsible for co-founding the incredibly popular Studio Ghibli. And Studio Ghibli is known for its critically acclaimed works like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. Like their other works, then, um, Akaje no Anne is full of just characteristic charm and whim and whimsy. It's full of beautiful illustrations and fun ways of interpreting the story. And actually, what's really nice is that it is um, legally available for free on YouTube. You can go watch it right now. A prequel, Konnichiwa Anne, is like a prequel to the Anne story, and this came out as an anime in 2009. Both of these animes together really increased the Anne fever to a new high, and they helped continue the waves of Anne obsession in Japan for the foreseeable future. Here, then, we can finally hit the theme park of the day. Looking at my raw recording, I'm at one hour and 47 minutes of raw audio. Oh my goodness. If you're still here, thank you. Thank you for sticking around. Let's talk about the Anne of Green Gables theme park in Japan. Now, of course, it's probably not surprising that Green Gables is a huge tourist destination on Prince Edward Island up in Canada, as it has been for most of the last century. 
and is really spread throughout the bones of Prince Edward Island. You can visit Green Gables, which was a real house, not not Lucy Maud Montgomery's, but it was a family home that did inspire Anne's Green Gables. You can see the foundations of Maud's original Cavendish home. You can walk down Anne's Lover's Lane. You can visit Maud's birthplace. Like, all of this stuff is woven throughout the tourism destination Prince Edward Island. And about half hour away in the big city, in Charlottetown, you can find the Anne of Green Gables musical, which I told you about earlier. It's supposed to be Canada's longest-running musical and the Guinness World Record holder for the longest-running annual music theater production in the world. Blah. Isn't that a lot of lot of words together? Queen Elizabeth herself saw this musical in back all the way back in 1964. But it's not just Canada, and it's not just Prince Edward Island. Just like Canadians are not the only nation to have a deep fascination with Anne, so too it is that another country also devotes some tourism resources to Anne. And of course, this is Japan. Ashibetsu, Hokkaido. A sister city for Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, since 1993. And it is home to Canadian World, the Anne of Green Gables Replica Park. So the story goes like this. In 1984, the city of Ashibetsu in Hokkaido, Japan, was looking to revitalize. Ashibetsu, or Village Where the Stars Fall, had previously been a prosperous coal mining town. However, the closure of most of the town's coal mines throughout the 1960s led to a population decrease. People moved elsewhere to find new jobs when the mining jobs closed. With the population moving out, Ashibetsu saw a new way to bring people to the town, either in the short term or the long term. It was decided that tourism would be the way, with a theme of stars, celestial objects, and so on, and a quote-unquote restful village concept. By late 1987, a proposal had been floated to create an Akaje no An-themed park, including a massive indoor water park to be located in the valley on the former site of a coal mine. Of course, costs being what they are and life being what it is, the next year saw the indoor water park proposal withdrawn, and a new proposal for Canadian World as it stands today was put out in its place. Now, why Anne in particular? Reportedly, it was as simple as the fact that one of the officers who was in charge of development had once visited Prince Edward Island and had seen the climate similarities. And had seen the climate similarities between that place and Ashibetsu. Quote, the fact that he was a fan of this led to this proposal, end quote. You can find a lot of detail on this project in the Japanese language Wikipedia page. So... That is very nice. Of course, Google Translate has quite a hard time translating between Japanese and English for whatever reason. So there are some irregularities and uncertainties in my telling of this story to you just based on poor translation. But we should be thankful we can even translate it at all, right? Thank goodness for Google Translate. Anne of Canadian World was reported to be on the order of roughly between about... 37 to 48 million U.S. dollars, um, including mining site preparation, the Anne of Green Gables themed park, and a giant field of lavender. Lavender planting was actually begun in June of 1989, 
and Canadian World itself officially opened in July of 1990. The park was called Japan's largest theme park with a Canadian theme. Um, This is a logical statement, considering I couldn't find any other Canadian-themed parks out there. It was and is less of an amusement park and more of a leisure park or a historical recreation park. Prince Edward Island itself was faithfully reproduced there in Ashibetsu. There was Green Gables, there was Mrs. Lynn's house, there was a clock tower, and so forth. An artificial lake was dug, Anne's Lake of Shining Waters, that very famous lake, and spruce trees were planted to make the Ghost Forest and Lover's Lane. Next to the lake, a central plaza with a curving walkway lined with dozens of Canadian-style buildings in a row, looking out across the water at the hilly mountains and on the beautiful landscape. A train station on either end of the park, a field of lavender, and of course the Green Gable House, set back on its own among a beautiful garden. Words do not do the scope of this park justice. The place is absolutely huge. 450,000 meters squared. 450 kilometers square. That's huge! The main central plaza is located in the bowl of the old mine pit. And then there are lots of other buildings scattered throughout the grounds. And they're up on, you know, it's shaped as if it's a bowl. They're up on the rims and the edges and the walls of the bowl. Getting down to the central plaza is very easy. You just walk down. But getting back up that steep downhill path is a little bit harder when you need to go home. All of the buildings are completely Western. They're little houses just like you'd find in Canada. Clapboards painted white and cream and blue, brightly colored shutters, pointy roofs, porches suitable for rocking chairs. And inside, most are actually little shops and activities, or at least they were. Quiltmaker's shop, woodcarver's shop, chapel, the kids' playground area. And the park was actually divided up into several different zones, though it's hard to really draw them out on a map. There was the Kensington Zone, the Colt Zone, Craft Village Zone, Avonlea, Terrace du Franc Zone, and the Bright River Zone. A CD was released when the park opened by EMI Music Japan as the official park soundtrack. There were also other kinds of promotions. There was a picture book for children featuring photos of the park. There were cross-promotions with the local transportation system to encourage visitors. And, of course, as noted earlier, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and Ashibetsu, Hokkaido became sister cities to mutually encourage tourism and exchange between the two places. Unfortunately, though, Canadian World didn't take off. Despite the continued successes of Anne as a cultural icon in both Japan and Canada— and the new 1990s translations of Anne and Green Gables and related works, and all of the new multimedia productions that were tied into the Anne brand, Canadian World floundered. It was unable to tie into the success of the brand as a whole. But still, we must carry on, and so they did. 1991 saw the highest number of yearly visitors, about 270,000, well below the estimated target of 400,000. New features were added to the park, things like a large restaurant called Heartland, a miniature SL, which is steam locomotive, choo-choo, here comes the abandoned train, 
Um, and this was called Canadian Rocky, added in 1992, painted green and gold. And this was actually, there's very little information about it, but I was able to find an operational video from about 96, I think, or 97. This is an engine in the CP Huntington style, but it is not a CP Huntington. It has a 244 wheel configuration. And so beyond that, I can't really say much about what kind of train engine it was. So train enthusiasts, you hop on over to the CP Huntington train group. If you really want to know more about this one, you can probably find it. There was also things like a museum for antique music boxes, rowboat rentals, or even horseback riding from the Canadian Riding Club. Despite the beauty of the natural landscape and the faithfully reproduced Canadian-style buildings, it seems that there was some dissatisfaction at the time about how well Canadian World actually did reproduce Prince Edward Island. The location of the park meant that when winter came, it was not only difficult to get to, it was also not necessarily a pleasant experience to visit. Think about walking down a fairly steep path without handrails covered in ice and snow. That doesn't sound like a fun idea. So tourism numbers in the winter seasons were quite low, and eventually the park had to shutter during the winter entirely. The park is set on an incredibly hilly patch of land, as I mentioned, and so it's a little difficult to get around the park even for your average able-bodied person. And apparently at the time, elderly people were actively discouraged from visiting. There was also said to be very little for small children to do, though a small playground with a slide was added at some point. Outside food was also not allowed to be brought in for a time, making repeat guests unlikely. And internally, the Japanese Wikipedia page says that there was poor management and various internal management conflicts. As I said, it's not really clear based on the translation, but it seems that there was something about how the assets and souvenirs and goods for the park were purchased and managed, and that it was done poorly, which contributed to high costs and therefore low profits. Plans were made to expand Canadian World to better position it as a year-round business after it had been open for several years. The most major of these was called Canadian Sports World, and it was a project that was planned to either open or begin construction in 1994. And this was to feature a ski resort, a hotel, and a golf course. Unfortunately, and what was truly the death knell for both Canadian World and any possible expansions like Canadian Sports World, the economy. The economy struck. As I talked about in my Takako Numa Greenland episode, which you might remember from last year, the economic bubble collapse in Japan in the late 90s caused problems across the country, especially for the many theme parks which had popped up to try and take advantage of the good economy of the early 90s. Hearing Ashibetsu, it meant that there would be no more plans for Canadian Sports World. And at Canadian World, employees were laid off. But the financial problems snowballed. And it seems from the translation I was reading that the park went bankrupt, shuttering in the fall of 1997. There were multiple reasons. The location was poor, the economy was poor, and there were other, some might say better, theme parks out there that were competing for visitor attention. With the park closed, the community met to figure out what to do. Through a long series of public meetings and financing agreements, it was decided that the privately owned park, 
would now become a public, free, municipal park owned by the city, and it reopened in July of 1999 as Ashibetsu Municipal Canadian World Park. Well, originally there had been something on the order of 34 buildings or facilities, not all were reopened. Things like the, the big ones, they reopened. And Anne's Green Gables house reopened as a museum, and inside it had photos of Maud, vintage Anne books, and a complete setup of the Green Gables house that you could walk through, just like back in Prince Edward Island. There was also a post office and something called Mrs. Lynn's house that were reopened and managed by the city and used as museum and post office and gift shop. Ten other buildings were also reopened, but these were occupied by separate private tenants. But unfortunately, this wasn't enough. Maintenance costs on the site were huge, amounting to almost a million dollars U.S. dollars annually. And attendance was said to be low. 50,000 people in 1999, 70,000 people in 2001, and then nothing but decreases down to the last number I saw was 30,000 people in 2012 for the entire year. To put that in perspective, Disneyland in California is said to host about 44,000 guests per day. So compare this to this figure of 30,000 guests over an entire year, and you can see where the financial problems might lie. By 2007, the city had to renegotiate the bankruptcy agreement and reconfigure the debt that was on the Canadian World site. From what I could read, the mediation allowed the reduction of the operating costs for the park, but this quote-unquote free public park was still costing the city a lot of money. Canadian World did serve as a background for several productions, including several movies, but this didn't really help the economic forecast for the park. And 2013 onwards really saw an increasing number of closures and vacancies. The tenant that used to be at the Kensington Station building vacated. The SL Miniature Steam Train was noted as gone as of 2011, although I will add the caveat that there still do appear to be a couple of the train cars on site, um, even in 2019 videos. But it does seem that at least the engine and maybe a couple of the cars were sold off to somewhere else. Several of the buildings by the north end of the park were completely closed simply due to structural instability. Basically, they were unsafe to occupy or use. Even back while the park was in operation, it was falling apart. Public transportation to the park was slowly reduced, requiring visitors to come by private car or taxi. And this is really not necessarily something to gloss over. Here in here in the U.S., you know, most places live where having a car is a requirement. You have to drive quite a ways. You have poor public transportation options. But in Japan, you're expected to use public transportation most of the time. So most people don't own a car. So this is actually a huge requirement on the people who want to visit, and it makes it a lot harder. Because, of course, Canadian World was located where a coal mine had once been, and it's up in the mountains. It's not close by the rest of the city. So distance is, is a bigger factor than you might realize in this uh, regard. And public events stopped being held there. For several years, for 20 years, in fact, there was this event called 
the candle art event held in August. And 2014 saw the last occurrence of this. It was actually this one huge night where people would gather. There would be huge displays of just people covering the whole property, the whole grounds with flashlights and candles and laser beams and fireworks. And there was this whole huge public event. But 2014 saw the last one of those. There simply weren't enough funds or enough workers to make the event go on. The 2014 release of the Hanako and Anne anime uh, did start to boost tourism slightly, and Universal Music did re-release that omnibus and CD, but it wasn't enough to help the place draw in the crowds. So local committees began to meet to discuss the future of the park. Here, again, the translation from the Japanese Wikipedia page does make complete understanding a bit unclear. But it seems as though the city decided to stop having the park be a municipal park. The debts were continuing to pile up for the city, and the number I read was something on the order of $19 million in U.S. dollars, estimated to be needed in order to completely renovate the aging facilities, which have apparently weathered quite poorly. Most of the tenants had pulled out, and really only the city-run buildings were regularly in operation. Not only that, but a local newspaper article in October of 2019 quotes an official who blames the theming, saying, quote, the content did not match the climate and temperament of Ashibetsu, end quote. Take that as you will. So here we reach the modern era and the very new and recent developments in Canadian world. A new organization was set up called the Canadian World Promotion Association, and it took over operation of Canadian World beginning from the 2019 season winter closure, a.k.a. just this past fall. In fact, Canadian World isn't even open yet for the spring, so we're not really sure how it's going to go down. But this group is an organization of volunteers comprised of the tenants occupying the park, as well as private sector members. The group originally requested to rent the facilities for free, and their original plan is for 2020 operation only on weekends and holidays, with some weekdays during the school's summer vacation. Now, I was really excited when I found this this online very recently because the group actually just recently started setting up new social media accounts, um, Facebook and Twitter, and on ReadyFor.jp, which is a crowdfunding platform, kind of like Kickstarter. And so even in the local newspapers, they were being written up in the local newspapers to highlight the project and their crowdfunding efforts to date to bring additional attention to the cause. And reading their announcements on their Kickstarter page or on their crowdfunding page uh, are particularly interesting because they talk about the buildings and the repairs that are needed for each one. They talk about people who visited the park over the years. They talk about people who are just generally involved in the extended and universe who've like lent their support to the project. It's a really interesting um, thing to see. The update about the status of the buildings was particularly surprising to me because it's really sad to see the state that they're in. For buildings that are only 30 years old, they're in very poor shape. Walls are falling down. Some doors don't close. The general air in the park in 2020 and 2019 is one of disarray. Fundraising, though, has been quite successful, and this new private group has raised enough money to operate the park in 2020 
and to begin basic repairs on a building-by-building basis, starting with Anne's Green Gable house. The hope that I read of the group, based on the text in their updates, is that the operation will be self-funding from this point on through membership dues and fundraising activities elsewhere. It's interesting, the Canadian World Promotion Association is actually quite transparent on their crowdfunding page about the costs involved with the park, mainly electrical, it sounds like, as well as sewer, so basic utilities. And the basic utilities run about 1 million yen for the half year when the park is open, roughly about $10,000 in utility costs. Based on this history, then, you can see that Canadian world has never really been abandoned in its history at all, although some might consider the non-operational year in 1998 to be so. Rather, I think why Canadian world is often considered abandoned is because of its limited operational time period. During its most recent operation as a municipal park, Canadian World operated from the end of April to the end of October with fairly limited hours, only 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Most of the shops and tenants were only operational on the weekends, and so, especially if you visited on a weekday or on the off-season, I mean, you would see the appearance of an abandoned site even though it was still technically operational. But at the same time, maintenance has been and has been for the park an ongoing struggle. Many of the buildings and park features were poorly maintained over the years. And so today, they have the appearance of being much older than their actual years. Today, Canadian world is really unfortunately only popular in the Western world through abandoned and urbex tourism videos. One of these people is called Exploring with Josh. He's very popular. People like Exploring with Josh, they create incredibly cinematic videos of places that are abandoned or places that need explored, places that I'm never able to visit. But in this case specifically, I really hate the clickbaity titles that are given. The clickbaity title for this video about Canadian world is Fake Town of Horrors, What Happened Here? Obviously, you can tell given the history that you have just sat through in the last two hours that that title has no actual bearing on anything related to Anne of Green Gables or Canadian world. Josh's video itself is respectful enough when you watch through it, but the title, oh, the title, I just can't get over it. Anyhow, I really wish that more... Um, Americans and just the Western world in general knew more about this park, and that's why I did this episode, because it's a really interesting place. It does look abandoned. Every single video I've ever seen of the place, like, it looks hugely abandoned. The park is so spread out that even if there were a lot of visitors at one time, it would be hard to feel very crowded. There are a couple videos online from the mid-90s of the park, and even then, in these promotional videos... The park doesn't look crowded at all, though it was, of course, more populous back then than it is today. In the year 2020, maintenance is a huge issue at Canadian World in Japan. Fences are at an angle, getting close to falling in the lake. Lampposts are tilting over, held up by ropes instead of being repaired properly. The signs are all illegible. They're weather-worn and faded. A long-abandoned chain swing, missing its swings, sits just in the middle of the central plaza, rusting away. It's exceedingly surreal to view the footage available of Canadian World. Operational, yet empty. 
It's like being part of a dream. One has the entire park to themselves, it seems like, this huge open-air vista of Western-style buildings right there in Japan. Only a character so powerful as Anne of Green Gables, I have to think, would be able to keep pulling this off, dragging along this failing theme park, and still enticing tens of thousands of people to visit each year. Anne truly is a legendary character. Although I began researching this episode solely to talk about the theme park, I have to say that I'm grateful to have learned about Maud and Anne. And if you ask me again, I will tell you I am very satisfied about the percentage of this podcast that is devoted to people and the percentage of the podcast that is devoted to theme park. The women that I've talked to you about today are incredible women, and their stories have deserved to be told. The introduction of Anne of Green Gables to Japan, it's safe to say, had an outstanding effect on Japanese culture for such a small children's book. The female Canadian missionaries like Loretta Leonard Shaw, who taught students like Hanako Muraoka, the first Anne translator, really helped to educate a generation of Japanese girls with increasingly modern ideals. Maud's writing changed and developed with the times she lived in. It was a time of rapid growth in technology. There were wars, changes in the roles of women, and so on. But Maud always knew that Anne would be her ultimate enduring legacy. She was hopeful, but fierce, in the face of all strife and struggle. Maud built for Anne a found family, sculpted out of her own hopes from the ashes of the nuclear family that she herself never had. And this is a theme that so many people still relate to today. Beyond her characters and her prose, Maud's mental health struggles and addiction problems are incredibly resonant today, the better part of a century later. Addiction issues are still huge in society today, if you think about the opioid crisis. But at least today it's more socially acceptable to discuss these things, and it doesn't have to be confined to private journal entries. None of this was what I expected to find when I sat down to learn about this strange, not-really-abandoned theme park in Ashibetsu, Hokkaido. I wasn't expecting to become fascinated by this strong, brave, brilliant woman, a person who has this gift for words, who was reaching across the decades to talk with me. What a refreshing research topic it was to focus on the lived experience of women. Of women! Not only that, but it was refreshing to hear so much about the women that Maud knew and the women who've written about Maud. While I may not yet have the personal affection for the character of Anne Shirley that so many do, I most certainly now have a deep admiration and respect for her creator, Lucy Maud Montgomery. Maud's first piece of writing she ever sought feedback on was a poem, which she considered her masterpiece at the bright old age of 12. I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it was a fitting end to today's story. Quote, When the evening sun is setting, quietly in the west, in a halo of rainbow glory, I sit me down to rest. I forget the present and future. I live over the past once more, as I see before me crowding the beautiful days of yore. End quote. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel. 
where I'm your host, Ashley, and I talked about Lucy Maud Montgomery, Anne of Green Gables, and Canadian World in Hokkaido, Japan. There are more Anne and Maud books out there than you could possibly imagine, but I'll suggest the two that really grabbed me. House of Dreams by Liz Rosenberg and Looking for Anne of Green Gables by Irene Gamble. Both are engagingly written and fun to read and contain far more detail than I could possibly present here. My theme music here is Aerobatics in Slow Motion by Technoax. My incidental music is by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. As always, you can find a rough transcript, images, and complete list of references at my website. For this episode, visit theabandoncarousel.com backslash 30. Thank you also to Florian from The Abandoned Kansai for allowing the inclusion of a photo. Check out their great site for more information. I do have a Patreon, and I will shortly be publishing a complete behind-the-scenes podcast episode there detailing the production of this Anne of Green Gables episode. You can find that at patreon.com backslash theabandonedcarousel. If you haven't done so already, please leave a rating and review in your podcast app, especially on Apple Podcasts. Just click the show name, click ratings and reviews, and then drop five sparkly stars. It really helps others to find the show. Finally, I'm going to be releasing a Q&A episode in the next few months, so now is a great time to start sending in a question that you might like to be answered on that. For any questions, comments, corrections, or concerns, please visit my contact page on my website or simply email hello at theabandoncarousel.com. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I will see you then. Remember, as a brilliant, brave, strong woman who made her own way said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. <laughs>